Hello, and welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. Today is December 21st, 2012, and hey, we're still here! The continuing existence of the world following the much-hyped and contrived supposed Mayan apocalypse is satisfying proof against some predictions that have been perniciously pervasive lately. The various forecasts of deadly collisions with planets or asteroids, devastating solar activity, or the reversal of the Earth's rotation, to name a few, were scientifically ridiculous. But in a recent article in Time, Science, and Space, it was pointed out that 10% of us believed them. The world did not end, clearly, so the doomsday prediction is proved debunked, right? It might not be long, though, until the next round of end-time prognostications creates another hysteria, despite sound reassurances from the scientific community. So why are so many people so skeptical of the predictions offered by science? Maybe because of the perception that scientific predictions aren't really all that reliable. At a recent Science in the City event titled Pride, Flying Cars and Other Broken Promises, moderator George Musser pointed out that there are all kinds of things science offered up as imminent that really never came to be. Things like jetpacks, dinners in pill form, cures for all the diseases, or say, robot helpers in every home. Why do scientists make predictions like that? Should they? And what causes the gap between what science can really do well, what it can't, like guarantee intrinsically unknowable futures, and the kinds of predictions people want and expect from science versus what science can provide. In this excerpt from our panel discussion on pride in science, Dr. Stuart Firestein, chair of Columbia University's Department of Biological Sciences, speaks to these questions. It seems to be a recent vintage to me, this particular problem, and I'm not, I'm not really sure where it all exactly came from or when it started, but there, there was, I, I think, a time not so long ago when the uncertainty or the unsettled part of science was not so much a problem, that, that there was a recognition that unsettled science is not necessarily unsound science. Mm -hmm. You did with what you had and you did what you could with what you had. And then I think both scientists and the public and politicians, and they're all sort of co-responsible in some, in some nasty kind of positive feedback loop of feeding the public facts, feeding them predictions, yeah. feeding them optimistic views in order to get funding perhaps, and then and then a kind of expectation that comes out of that on the part of the public because journalists pick it up and this and that and say, well, we expect to have this cure or that cure or this new gadget or this new technological advance, and then they either don't come about or don't come about as quickly as we had hoped. So it's a kind of a vicious cycle, and it's a problem because I think fundamentally human beings do not like uncertainty. Mm. That's true. Our brains are not built for uncertainty. You know, there's a sort of a little dappled light pattern over on the forest floor there, you don't really want to wait to see whether it's the spots on a leopard or the light coming through the trees. You just take off, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a better idea. So those are our ancestors that lived, and we have their brains that don't like ambiguity. But it's that kind of a world now that we live in. So yeah. I think we have to learn. And, and it begins with education. It begins with our educational system and the way we teach science. But we teach facts instead of teaching questions. Yes, yeah. in my opinion, completely wrong. Uh, then the issue, though, is how do you engage more people in the scientific project in a way that they find that it, they can engage in it? Because right now we present it to them as some huge encyclopedic collection of facts that nobody could hope to ever master. Um, and that, I think, is the problem. I think you have to 
give people a taste for questions and, and have them understand that science is yeah. about puzzles and questions and, yeah. and a kind of uncertainty that's very appealing the way a sporting event should be. Beierstein puts this principle into action by teaching a course on the role of ignorance in science. This, this is a book that I wrote this year that was mentioned. It comes from a course that I teach at Columbia University now called Ignorance and How It Drives Science. And it's an attempt, I guess, to suggest to, to the public in general uh, that what the way scientists think about uh, science is not as in a big accumulation of facts, um, some huge edifice of facts that we keep adding to, but rather as a series of questions that facts are really mostly good to frame better questions. The major product, I have to say, of science is ignorance, and of course there's nothing we could possibly be more ignorant of than the future. So predicting it is always a little bit tricky. I'm, I'm going to read this one quote. This is from David Hilbert, who was a very famous and well-respected mathematician around the turn of the uh, 20th century in the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, and this is from an address that he gave to the... Um, International Mathematical Association meeting, which was in Paris in 1900. It's very short. Who among us would not be happy to lift the veil behind which is hidden the future, to gaze at the coming developments of our science and at the secrets of its development in the centuries to come? This was the introduction to his speech, and, it, and it's that kind of feeling about sense. Now, in that same speech, Hilbert went on to define a, what became known as the Hilbert problems of there were 23 problems, open problems in mathematics that he felt were crucial to be solved. And so the interesting thing here about Hilbert's idea of prediction is not to predict advances or what will happen, but to predict, but to predict the future by listing the ignorance. Use prediction as a way of cataloging our ignorance, as a way of cataloging what we don't know and where we might go. And indeed it was quite effective because it really provided, I would say, the agenda for mathematics for much of the 20th century, in fact. And it's still a, there's still some lively questions that are unanswered from Hilbert's original 23. I'll put that next to a quote that I thought, I must say, and I have quoted from Yogi Berra, not Arthur C. Clarke, which is, the future ain't what it used to be. And since we're in New York, I think it's Yogi Berra, and that's the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's another view of the future, that it ain't what it used to be. So, um... I think this this notion of, of uh, predictions in science, which are, I mean, the one thing you can predict about predictions is that they tend to not come true, it seems. Um, they are, as Enrico Fermi said, a very risky business. Predictions are a risky business, especially when they're about the future. And, and that's <laughs> sort of true, obviously. He was a smart guy, you know. Um, uh, but they are, as I say, a kind of a catalog of ignorance, and I think they're very useful that way in, in some regards. I think the, mm. the trick, though, is to use the Hilbert, the Hilbert strategy and not make predictions of advances, but rather turn it around and make predictions about questions, uh, about areas of ignorance that we ought to be exploring and looking into um, more, more deeply. So why aren't scientists following this principle? I mean, are they just arrogant jerks? There are a few arrogant putzes in, the, in, the, in science, there's no question about that, and, and they tend to grab the headlines. But I would say overall, really, doing science for most scientists is one of the most humiliating things you can do. I mean, most of the time it <laughs> fails, it just doesn't work, no. you know. So, so I think it can actually be quite humbling, um, and a scientist who doesn't understand humiliation, you know, as, as somebody once said, there's nothing, nothing more tragic in science than a beautiful theory killed by an ugly fact. And I mean, it happens every day in yeah. labs all yeah. around the world, yeah. you know. 
So, so actually, I think there's, there's great humility in most of science. Now, I agree with you that, that unfortunately the headlines and maybe the funding often gets grabbed the other way, yeah. and that's not so good. But What is it that draws scientists into complicity with the cycle of overly optimistic predictions and skewed expectations? Well, I think grant proposals do that to you after yeah. a so. while. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you write grant proposals. It's extremely competitive to get, you know, a, a shrinking pot of money in, in a, for an endeavor that's becoming every day more expensive. And so you, you tend to um, make, um, you, know, you, you tend to make things sound very positive. We're going to find this out. Here's our five-year program. By the end of this year, we'll know this and that and so mm -hmm. and so on. They set milestones. And if you want to be competitive, you don't go in mm -hmm. there with a bunch of open kind of questions. What about the scientific method? The very act of positing a hypothesis is kind of a prediction. Is scientific research founded on the arrogance of thinking you've hypothesized correctly? Quite the contrary. It's actually a continuously open-ended process. One of, one of the things, if I can jump in, is that we haven't really talked so much about that has a lot to do with predictions, I think, and is fundamental to science, and that is, I think, causes some difficulties politically and maybe ethically, is that a part and parcel of science is uncertainty. Yes. is doubt. I mean, yeah. science revises. That's what we do. We continue to work. We, in science, revision is a victory. I mean, that's what we aim for, is to revise things. But so how do you then, how do you predict when you know that everything you have is uncertain and open to revision and likely to be revised by the next generation, if not sooner? Um, and, and how do you base policy decisions mm -hmm on something like this. As you know, I mean, climate changes now, so there's big arguments about it because there's certain uncertainties, mm -hmm. this and that, and there are, I would say, nefarious interests that, uh, that take advantage of this idea of uncertainty. I mean, the, the oh, tobacco wars, of course, were yeah. the most famous example yeah. of that, now largely, quote, over, but, but the biggest supporters of tobacco research in the 50s were the tobacco companies who continued to say, well, there's not really a clear, certain, um, you know, uh, right. cause and effect right. between smoke and... So we'll do more research. We need more research to be absolutely sure. And in the meantime, they sold another 40 billion cigarettes while they supported research, quote, to prove that cigarettes were no good for you. What happens when a theory meets with falsification or when an experiment yields insufficient hoped-for correlation between hypothesis and evidence? The, the appropriate place of failure is, of course, critical. Um, uh, I think it was Gertrude Stein said, a, a, a really good failure is, is an end in itself. You know, you, you know, it needs no excuse. And, and certainly failure is a crucial part of, of science, and, and it does go underreported. I mean, I think scientists in laboratories understand it. That's what I meant before by humiliation, you know. Uh, there's a great story about Einstein, I'll tell very quickly, when he first moved to Princeton, it may be apocryphal, was being um, um, interviewed by a member of the Princeton University paper, and this reporter, I've talked to him at some point, said, well, Professor Einstein, do you always carry a notebook with you to write down your great ideas? And Einstein is reported to have said, tell you the truth, I don't get that many great ideas. <laughs> Which, in a way, is true, by the way. <laughs> you know, yeah. he had a few. So, so how many do you need is the point. I mean, how, you know, if 1% of, of the of basic research came to be applied research, it would be a huge bonanza. So I think some, somehow or other, we also have to get that, that sort of idea straight. But yes, uh, failure is something we don't do well. Uh, and it's a shame because it's the crux of the whole thing, in my opinion. By the way, this subject is related to the publication bias against negative results, which will be the focus of an upcoming Science in the City event called Envy, the cutthroat side of science, coming up in April. To wrap up, people have often conflicting desires when it comes to knowledge. On the one hand, we want to feel secure 
and thinking we've gotten something right is pretty assuring in this respect. On the other hand, as my dad always says, inquiring minds need to know. We're an essentially curious, creative, and seeking species. Moderator George Musser asked Firestein if there might be some kind of difference between scientists and non-scientists in this regard. Maybe scientists are intrinsically more interested in new ideas, for instance. I'd like to think that there isn't, to tell you the truth. I think that everybody, everybody loves a puzzle, and that's what scientists like. And, and uh, everybody can enjoy a good puzzle, and we're all scientists in a way. We're all out in the world trying to figure things out. We make predictions, we test them, we try things out in our own way, and science is just maybe gets you know, more technical about this, that, or the other thing, has gotten a little deeper into it. But no, I, I don't really see a significant difference. I didn't start life as a scientist. I, started, I had a professional career in the theater for 15 years before I became a scientist. I don't think people in the theater are any more creative than people in science. I knew creative people in the theater, and I knew pedestrian people in the theater. I know creative people in science, and I know pedestrian people in science. So I don't really think there is. I think being a scientist is being a human being. That's it for this installment of the Science in the City podcast. For more, visit scienceinthecity.org. And please feel free to email us anytime at scienceinthecity at nyas.org. This is the last podcast of 2012. Personally and on behalf of Science in the City, I want to warmly thank all of you for your interest and for tuning in. And to wish everyone a wonderful new year. Happy holidays.